Good morning. Uh, I, I'm from Washington, and I'm here to help you. There's not much laughter. Usually there's much more laughter, but I think in these times, that's, I understand the sober laughter. Um, you know, clearly the, the issue about trade and technology is a very divisive one, increasingly so, I think. Uh, and, and, but I think it's also a double-edged sword. Technology can be not just a threat to trade flows and prosperity, but also a, a tremendous opportunity if it's done right and if it's harnessed correctly. Typically, when one thinks about technology and trade, China looms rather large uh, in that discussion as, as a threat. But, you know, the fact is that if the U.S. and the other G7 democracies are able to capture the advances in artificial intelligence and automation and digitalization in the logistics sector, I think there are significant opportunities not only to meet the challenge of China and other competitors in the world who are state-sponsored, but I think actually uh, overtake them. And the, the question is, how best to harness technology in order to increase our trade balances and improve the competitiveness of our firms? And the question, of course, is who is our firms? Because as we know, multinationals don't necessarily have a national allegiance. They operate in China, they operate in Europe, they operate in Latin America. And the question that we are wrestling with in Washington and elsewhere is what kind of patriotism can we count on in terms of the technological prowess of the firms that are headquartered here? And so I think that really is the question I think that I'd like to address is how to harness that technology and how to, how to use that technology to raise our productivity, to raise our standard of living. Now, my days in, in Washington when I actually worked on the government in the White House and in the United States Senate working for Senator John Glenn, um, I'm old enough to remember that in those days, China was not the threat. It was Japan. And, you know, for those of you who are old enough, you will remember that. Um, so the message there is that, you know, over economic history, countries come and go. And so while today China is the main threat from a technological perspective, it may not always be the case. In fact, my own view, and I've worked in China for probably two or three decades on the ground, going through state-owned enterprise after state-owned enterprise across the country, obviously meeting with a lot of the government officials in Beijing and in the local countries, my view is that China is fraught with fundamental contradictions. If you think about China's economic model of a, quote, socialist market economy, those words themselves convey a contradiction in terms. And I liken to what, the China's, what China's economic philosophy and strategy is, is we want to have our cake and eat it too. And I think what you are now seeing in the decline, the secular decline in China's growth rate, is that that contradiction 
is coming home to roost. And that is why you're seeing Xi Jinping grabbing more and more authority as he did just last month at the Third National Party Congress. I think, you know, when you do think about the time that technology played a role with respect to Japan and the United States, it will probably alarm you that then the technology in question was, yes, semiconductors. But it also arose in a very bizarre sense when Japan erected trade barriers against U.S. skis being imported into Japan. Why? They made the argument when I was the U.S. trade representatives in, in the White House, the snow in Japan is very different than the snow in the United States and in Europe. And the skis that the U.S. manufacturers really are, don't have the kinds of technology associated with the way they're manufactured to actually provide for a good skiing experience in Japan. And so they erected trade barriers for the export of U.S. manufactured skis into Japan. We fought very hard on that. We ultimately won. But you may not think of ski technology as rising to the level of importance today, and it certainly does in terms of electronic technology. But that is a technological question that really began to influence trade prowess between the United States and other countries. And in this particular case, Japan is not a developing country. It's a developed country ally. Now, I think, you know, also when one thinks about trade and technology today, one invariably thinks of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS. CFIUS is the White House body that assesses whether or not there are national security risks posed to the United States when U.S. firms acquire foreign investors, namely and mostly China. But there are also CFIUS cases that involve the acquisition uh, of U.S. firms by European firms or firms from elsewhere in Asia. I used to sit on CFIUS when it first started in the early 1990s. Now I'm, now I'm clearly dating myself. But then, you know, really the, the question before CFIUS really is quite very circumscribed and quite focused. Today, the job of CFIUS of assessing the risk of technology and national security largely is focused on China, but other countries come, come to the fold. I sat on CFIUS at the same time that I worked in the United States Senate, as I mentioned I was a chief economist for John Glenn, and, and I also served just thereafter in the White House as the negotiator, and this will be of most interest, I think, to many of you, the negotiator for the General Agreement on Trade and Services, GATS. Now, that is the body that is part of the WTO that regulates and sets the rules for trade and services, which is largely logistics. It's largely telecommunications. It's the regulation of exports and imports of professional services advisors. So technology and trade in the United States has quite a long history. Um, 
And the question is, how now can we in the United States and our G7 allies actually harness the power of automation, artificial intelligence, and digitalization in terms of logistics? It's not hard to see that that is beginning to be a very, very important issue. The, the concern, of course, is that when we infuse the logistics industry with automation, artificial intelligence, and digitalization, customers benefit, perhaps, by getting goods delivered faster and hopefully at lower prices, but it's the workers who are involved in the logistics industry that rightfully are very concerned about whether or not these technologies are, as an economist, which I am, would say, they're labor-saving. Well, that's a code word for, well, you know what? You as a dock worker, you as a truck driver, a rail operator, if these become automated and artificial intelligence is applied to them, your job may well be threatened. I don't think that's always the case. I think there can be harmony between the application of advanced technology that makes logistics industry more competitive and job creation. It may not be the exact same job that they're in now, but that re really raises the question of public policy, a question of how can we retrain workers to become more adept at dealing with these advances in technology. And, and other countries are, are doing this. So I think, you know, the, the real question for us is how can we live, particularly in the logistics sector, by embracing to some extent these advances in technology that provides for faster delivery, cheaper delivery of goods, but also doesn't decimate the labor force involved in, in that sector. Now, it's not just the dock workers, obviously, that are in question. It's not just the truck drivers. It's the folks who man the warehouses. It's the people who man the stores and have to judge the inventories about where should these shipments be held. Should they be held at the port? Should they be held at the warehouses? Should they be held at inventories at the stores? As we all know, these are not trivial questions, but as we enter the world of embracing artificial intelligence, digitalization, and automation, figuring out those questions through mathematical and other techniques rise to the fore. And I think that's where a lot of energy has got to be uh, devoted to that. Now, I think... One of the, the, the questions in my mind is, are we as a society, and that doesn't pertain just to the United States, beyond the technology, are we actually pricing the delivery of goods and services correctly? We've grown up, I think most of us have grown up, particularly with the advent of Amazon and other countries, of just-in-time production and delivery. We've gotten used to the fact that, you know, we can pay a, a relatively nominal fee to Amazon and its competitors to order something today, and it comes to our doorstep in two to three days' time. Now, as we all know, there is a lot going on behind the scenes 
for that to happen. But the question as an economist and as a consumer in my mind is, do we differentiate prices of those delivery speeds enough? Would you be willing to take a cut in the, you know, not willing to pay as high a price if, well, I didn't need my delivery in three days' time, but you know what, if you offer me a 20% discount on the price, I'd be willing to wait four or five days. I don't know about you, but I'm willing to do that. The problem is that we have created an economy with expectations that is a just-in-time economy. And that, that may be great for all of us who are type A's, but I'm not sure that that is the best way to organize our economy, to maximize employment in the industry, to maximize uh, innovation in the industry. We need, we need more differentiation, it seems to me, in, in pricing and the differential in pricing. And it's obvious that the, the pricing sends signals up and down the transmission line. It says pricing changes will affect what's happening at ports, it happens to what's going on in warehouses, and so on. But we have not, as a nation, grappled with how much should we rethink these kinds of pricing parameters. We've gotten, as I say, very used to a just-in-time society. Also, I think one of the issues before us today is when we look at what's been going on on the ports, it's become a game of whack-a-mole. You know, two or three months ago, we had, you know, boats, huge number of boats offshore in the Los Angeles basin. And then they migrated over to the East Coast and so forth. And it's like looking at a game of whack-a-mole to figure out where is the next congestion going to take place. As an economist you might think, well, again, there's a pricing problem. But I think there's also a big misperception, which is that what we have been witnessing in port congestion is an overhang of the COVID pandemic and when China went offline. And we're still going through this game of musical chairs to re-equilibrate where and how to make more rational the, the, the ability of ships to get into port and get unloaded. But again, I think the question is to separate between cyclical trends, and I would call the pandemic, I think, and I hope a cyclical matter, as opposed to secular trends. And the secular trends are what is affected by technology. And so I think the real question is to keep in mind what is the kind of logistics industry that we want that maximizes employment, maximizes income, provides consumers with satisfaction, but not have to worry, okay, so that ship was supposed to come into the port of Los Angeles, now it's going up to Seattle where there's congestion there, and then we've got empty containers sitting at, at Long Beach that are sitting on the docks because the trucks can't load them because there's nothing in them, and the Chinese create incentives to ship back empty containers and just leave or just leave them at the port because it's, it's more advantageous for them to go back to China and reload and to bring more. And again, as an economist, that's not a question of human behavior that's irrational. What it suggests is that the, the pricing schemes are not 
in line with what our preferences ought to be. And we need to work through this system. So don't be surprised, it seems to me, that if next year or in the coming months, we continue to see this congestion sort of migrating around the world. In some sense, that is a function of a market, but it can't be a sustainable path for how logistics works. And so it seems to me we need to think very carefully about the, the kinds of pricing, the kinds of administrative controls, and other policies that figure out how to smooth out these kinds of distortions. Let me, I want to leave you with three thoughts. We're talking about technology and trade. I, I don't know how much you pay attention to the, the forecasts that the World Bank and the IMF, the IMF just last week or a couple of weeks ago, released its forecast about trade for 2023. In 2021, trade flows in the world expanded by about 10%. In 2022, it's going to turn out to about, about a 4%. So from 10% to 4%. That's a huge drop. But even worse, for 2023, the IMF predicts that the volume of trade growth in the, in the world is going to go down to 2.5%. Now, that's a result of inflation. It's a result of a slowdown of the world economy. But I'm not sure how many of you and the rest of us in the logistics and, and surrounding industries understand that when trade flows shrink, that sends a fundamental, serious message about how we need to restructure our industries. The IMF does not predict a recalibration of trade flows back up until 2026, 2027, 2028. So we are in for a very hard time. And that has a lot to say about whether or not this game of whack-a-mole will continue. The second point I want to leave you with is to focus on the last mile. We, uh, those of us who know about logistics know that perhaps the most expensive and the most important facet of logistics is how to get the goods, not services, but the goods to the last mile. In other countries, in practically in emerging markets in particular, drones are, con are being used to engage in delivery of the last mile. And I don't know how many of you are in the drone business, but I submit to you that that is going to be an increasingly important application of technology in the logistics area for all the right reasons in terms of providing services at economically you know, reasonable rates to the factories and consumers who want things quickly. The question is, how do we regulate Jones so that there's not congestion? Finally, the question about adopting technology to logistics is a very, frankly, sad story in the case of India. In the east coast of India, the ports are not deep enough to take large ships. And so what happens is 30% of the ships that come into India are transshipped through Sri Lanka in a port that is owned by China. And the result of the fact that these ports are not deep enough is because the labor unions, the local governments fight being able to dredge those ports to be deep enough to bring in modern ships. Those are the kinds of parables, it seems to me, that we need to think about from a 